It's good to be here this morning. It's good to worship. In many, in many ways, um, I feel like after the worship, worship, we could just all go home because the music and the words have already preached to us. But we are going to wrap up our series on holiness today. And I'm going to ask you to turn in your, in your Bibles or on your phone to Isaiah chapter 6. And we'll get there in just a moment. As you're doing that, we're going to begin by playing a little bit of a word association game. Okay, now, there's some of you that are gamers, and you want to be the first one to call out the answer. Don't do that. Let the rest of us think a little bit, all right, and just hold on to that answer. If you get the answer to this question, what do these words have in common? Just hold on to it and be patient with the rest of us, okay? Water. Land. Smoke. Communion. Give you a chance to think a little bit. Don't shout out the answer. Here's one. Mackerel. Spirit. And this, this may be the dead giveaway. Matrimony. What do these words all have in common? Anybody? Holy. holy. They, have, they have the attachment of the word holy to describe something special. So holy water is a blessed water in the Catholic tradition. It's special. It's, it's, it's different than regular water, tap water. If you're from a liturgical background, you might remember when you were little, you went to a holy communion, your first holy communion. If you're married, you entered at some point into the bonds of holy matrimony, which, by the way, doesn't sound very encouraging to me. The bonds of holy matrimony. It almost sounds like you're trapped, right? The bonds of holy matrimony. If you get the opportunity to visit Israel, we refer to it as the Holy Land. It's a very special land. And when a person says, holy smokes, something special just happened. I don't know where that term came from. Maybe it came from the incense in the Old Testament temple. That was special and would, would certainly be considered holy smoke. As would the guy who's praying on the porch for his kids while he's finishing up that really good cigar. That might be holy smoke too. Um, now, holy mackerel. I don't know where that came from either. What's a holy mackerel? Maybe, maybe those were the two fish. That, that Jesus used when he fed the 5,000. Because when he grabbed onto those fish, it became holy. Certainly they became holy. But if you think about it, really, honestly, any mackerel would be a holy mackerel. You know, once you remove the hook, it would be a holy mackerel. You didn't need to laugh. That was terrible. So the word holy is thrown around a lot in our language, but... As our series, as we draw it to a close, the series on God's holiness, um, we really are focusing on what God means by the word holy, who God is. He is holy. And when we say he is holy, we mean that he is completely separate, completely different than we are in, in, in perfection, in power, in love. And we focused also on this series on what happens when God's holiness is displayed. And we've seen that it is very, very, very special. It's set apart from normal. He's set apart from anything that is human. He is holy. 
And so we have, in the last few weeks, looked at the truth of God's holiness and what it means for us. And today, what I want us to do is look at the experiencing that truth, experiencing the truth of holiness, and then what it accomplishes in those courageous enough and humble enough to look right into the heart of his holiness. What does it do to us? Now, many Christians believe in the holiness of God. But when was the last time that you experienced the holiness of God? When was the last time you experienced the holiness of God? Well, we don't have to wonder what that experience is like because when we look at Scripture, Moses experienced it, Abraham experienced it, Ezekiel, Peter, Paul, and the disciple John, they all experienced the holiness of God and they've witnessed, they felt what that holiness did to them. The person we're going to look at today is the person of Isaiah. And what does holiness accomplish in him? And then what holiness can accomplish in us? Let's first go to God and ask him to guide us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in so many different ways. Your compassion, your mercy, your care. But also revealing to us your holiness. We want to know how we can change by seeing your holiness. We need your spirit today to lead us. We need your spirit today to break down our pretenses, to break down the walls and make us vulnerable as Isaiah was so we can experience your holiness. This is our prayer. In your name we pray, amen. And so in Isaiah chapter 6, we have this incredible experience of God's holiness. And we're going to start right there in verse 1 where it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. Isaiah saw the Lord. This King Uzziah reigned and, and ran the government and Isaiah preached under his, his uh, government for 50 years. 50 years, and King Uzziah was one of the better kings. Um, the things were going well economically, things were going well spiritually. And then King Uzziah's favorite preacher, Zechariah, died. And as often happens, his life began to slide. He became uh, a, a, a backslidden, proud king, and his reign began to stumble. The people began to stumble, and they faltered. And then we read here that King Uzziah died and things were going on the downhill. What was Isaiah to do? Uzziah was the first king Isaiah preached under. And now the nation's faltering just as its king is faltering. What did God do for Isaiah? He gave him a fresh glimpse of the throne room of God to encourage him. And what a glimpse it was. Isaiah needed, in this leaderless nation, a fresh view of God himself. And I want to just stop and say, I don't know what your world is like, but when the world looks dark and chaotic, like no one's in control, and you find yourself asking, where is God? You're right where Isaiah is. What I want to do is to encourage you to look up. Like Isaiah, look up and what will you see? Will you see an empty throne? 
Not at all. You'll see God seated firmly on his throne, high and lifted up. He's still on his throne. Nothing can shake him from his throne. Not chaos, not ungodliness, not a war. God is still on his throne. And that's why it's important for you to know why King Uzziah is mentioned at the beginning here. Because like Isaiah, we need a fresh vision from God. Let's take a look at that fresh vision. We read on, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. This is the temple in heaven. Above him were seraphs. These were angelic creatures that were both amazing and terrifying at the same time. They were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now pay attention, if you, if you would, to the impact of their voices as they are flying around the throne of God and shouting to one another that God is holiness. Here is holiness personified. Look at the impact of their voices. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Put yourself on Isaiah's sandals. What, what an amazing but also terrifying picture. I can't wrap my, around, my mind around this experience. The Lord Almighty is high. He's lifted up. Isaiah's down here. And we have these, ange- ter- this, these terrifying but, 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 but uh, incredible creatures flying around, shouting back and forth to one another, filling the temple of God with the sound of holiness. And it says here that just the sound of their voices, let alone the power of the truth in their voices, shook heaven's temple. It was like a tornado of praise. If you think our music is loud, you wouldn't be too happy around the throne room of God with Isaiah. Because it shook the very thresholds of the temple in heaven. The power of their voices, the power of the truth they proclaimed. We, we read about these same creatures in Revelation chapter 4, where it says that these, these same angelic beings in the same throne room, day and night, never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh, the Almighty. Words can't express what he saw. He tried. But the holiness of God in his throne room is amazing. Words can't really describe it, but we do know the effect that it had on the prophet. And that's what we want to look at today as well. The work in Isaiah began with this incredible worship experience where you saw the holiness of God. He said, I saw the Lord. And that's how it all begins. I saw the Lord. Now, what did, what did Isaiah say in response? He didn't say, hallelujah, this is wonderful. Isn't this great? I love this loud music. That's not what he said. Read verse 5. He says, woe to me, 
I cried. <laughs> I cried out, woe to me, I am ruined. Or some versions say, I'm undone. And the Hebrew word means to cut down. He was cut down when he saw God in his holiness. That's a really common response when we look in Scripture. When people encounter the greatness of God, they are cut down and many of them fall to the ground. Think of Abraham. When, when Abraham experienced God's holiness, we read in Genesis chapter 15, he saw this blazing torch in a dream and he called it dreadful. When Moses experienced God's holiness, he removed his shoes and he hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. When Ezekiel was transported to the throne room of God, he looked up and then he fell face down. After Peter told Jesus, you remember by the seashore, after Peter told Jesus to leave him alone because there was no fish to be caught, I mean, come on, you're a carpenter's son, I'm the fisherman. He basically was telling this, this newcomer he knew more about fish than he did. And then when Peter reluctantly dropped the nets, you know the story, all of a sudden they began to burst with fish and, and he realized he was standing in the presence of one more holy, one smarter, one wiser and more powerful than he was. What was his response? Do you remember his response? What did he say? What did Peter say? Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinner. When Paul was confronted with the holiness in the presence of Jesus, he literally was knocked off his high horse and he too fell to the ground, confused and humbled. And the disciple John writes in the Revelation of Christ, our last book in the New Testament, that when he saw Jesus in all his glory, resurrected and glorified, in chapter 1, verse 17, he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's the response when people see God in his holiness. Can you feel that? Can you hear the sound? Can you see them on the ground? When we experience God's holiness, truly, that's the response. They all fall face down as though dead. They hide their faces. Why? Because in the presence of this amazing and holy God, they sense their own, their own unworthiness in the presence of this holy God. Peter's like, go away. I don't belong on the same beach as you. So here's Isaiah in the middle of this incredible worship service in heaven. And what does he say? He says, woe to me, I am ruined he says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. I'm in big trouble, is what Isaiah was saying. After this incredible worship experience, he realizes, I, I got to confess, God, you're amazing, you're holy, and I'm just ruined. I'm undone in your presence. And he says something interesting. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live with the people of unclean lips. What are unclean lips? To me, it would be anyone who sings the Michigan football fight song. <laughs> they have unclean lips and they cheer amongst the people of unclean lips. 
And I would add anyone who happens to be wearing a uh, Green Bay Packers uh, jersey or coat who would want to say something mean about the Eagles today would be somebody with unclean lips. Unclean lips, by the way, are not just lips that swear or say naughty words. In fact, God tells Isaiah what unclean lips are. He says here, the Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They honor me with their lips. They say they believe, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they've been taught. See, our lips are unclean when what is in our heart negates what we say. Those are unclean lips. When I say I believe in the holiness of God, but my heart says differently. When I say prayer changes things, but my heart reveals a different picture. When I say I believe in the unity of the church, but my attitude says otherwise. When I say I believe the gospel can and must save people, but my heart shows otherwise. See, that's what unclean lips are. Here is the prophet Isaiah, the preacher, saying, my lips are unclean. Do you have unclean lips? Check your heart and then check your lips. Do you truly believe in your heart? What you say you believe with your lips. That's what's happening here. You know, people can go years without realizing how far their hearts are from God. Because they're still going to church and Christmas Eve services and Bible studies and they don't swear, they tithe, they're friendly, they volunteer at church and they give the missions. All great things. But their hearts are lukewarm. Warm. You know what lukewarm feels like? Nothing. They don't feel anything. And I know our faith is not all about feelings. But when we look at these people that experience God's holiness, there's a whole lot of feeling going on. Many Christians feel nothing anymore. But when you encounter God's holiness, it not only shows how awesome and dreadful and powerful he is, but it also shows how desperate we are without him. And that's what Isaiah was saying when he says, I'm undone. I'm cut down. I am desperate without you. An experience in God's holiness can cut you down until you're ready to admit, God, without you, I am desperate. You are high and lifted up and I am cut down, face down in your holy presence. See, here's Isaiah. Floored by worship, literally. Almost paralyzed by confession because he sees himself in light of God's greatness and holiness. But you know what? Now he's in a position to receive mercy. We read in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 6. Then one of the seraphs, those angelic beings, flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This altar there in heaven is, is the prototype for the altar in the wilderness, in the tabernacle, and, and the altar later in the temple in Jerusalem. But this is the real altar. 
in heaven. And here's where we find the sacrifice required for forgiveness to be distributed by God. And, and the seraph, this angelic worshiping creature, is directed by the Lord to bring forgiveness to Isaiah because now he's in a position to receive it. And he received it right where he needed it. Where did he receive it? Right on his lips. And here we see the mercy. Here we see the grace of God. Isaiah experiences this holiness and this incredible worship. And then now he experiences this mercy and this personal forgiveness. But a question that I have for you is this. What connects the holiness of God and the mercy of God? It's our confession. It's our realization that we don't deserve it. What connects the holiness of God, which shows this great chasm between us and God, what connects us with the holiness of God to the mercy of God, which seals and beautifies our relationship with him, is confession. It's Isaiah's confession that connects the holiness of God, verses 1 through 4, with the mercy of God, verses 6 and 7. Verse 5 is right in the middle, his confession. You know, Abraham received grace too. Abraham received the covenant in that dreadful encounter with God. In Genesis chapter 15, look it up later. In that dreadful encounter with God, he receives this covenant. This covenant of grace. When Ezekiel was face down, and he couldn't, literally couldn't get up. The Lord said to him, son of man, stand up on your feet and I'll speak to you. That is an act of grace. In fact, if you read in Ezekiel, it says, as he spoke, the spirit of God came in me so I could stand up. What an act of grace. Peter, remember the one who said, go away from me, Lord. <laughs> I, I can't be on the same beach with you. What did Jesus say to him? Don't be Afraid. Those are words of grace. And Saul, Paul, when, when uh, God sent a frightened disciple named Ananias to Saul, who was an enemy of the church, who was actually riding to arrest Christians, Ananias went to the house where Saul was blinded by God for a few days. And placing his hands on Saul, we read in Acts, he said, Brother Saul, I can imagine the hands were probably like this. Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. What an incredible act of grace. Turning an enemy of the church into a soon-to-be defender of the church. But one of my favorite pictures of grace, after a person is floored by the holiness of God, is there in the book of Revelation with John. When John sees the majesty of a resurrected, glorified Jesus, he doesn't even recognize him. It's so amazing. He's at Jesus' feet, laying there as though dead, collapsed. And Revelation 1.17 says, Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. And John realizes it's Jesus. Do you see how God 
works his holiness into his people to transform them. After God's holiness sinks in and then our confession pours out, we receive that merciful hand on our shoulder. We receive healing. We receive peace for our fears. We receive the spirit to be able to stand back up like Ezekiel and to stand in forgiveness. To stand in what Paul said later on is the grace. He said we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We're not on the ground anymore. We can stand because of grace. See, this is more than just a theological understanding of holiness. This is an experience of God's holiness that is personal. And we thank him for it because we don't deserve it. But God doesn't stop here. What are we to do with this wonderful grace that he gives us? This forgiveness we don't, that we don't deserve, the mercy that he pours out on us. Well, let's take a look at Isaiah and, and, and finish the first part of the, of the verses here in verses 8 and 9. After the worship floored Isaiah and he confessed to God and then God brings his mercy. It says here, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. Why was Isaiah so eager? I mean, moments ago, he was on the ground, frightened, in wonder. And now he's raising his hand like the kid in the back of the classroom. Send me. Ooh, ooh, I'll go. Why? Why was he so eager? Even before he knew what the message was, which, by the way, was very difficult, if you read the rest of the chapter, even before he knew how difficult the message was and his journey was going to be, he said, I'll go. I'll go. Why? Because he had seen God's holiness. He had seen how small and unclean he appeared next to God. But then he had confessed his desperate situation, his desperate need, and this holy God who didn't have to love him, who didn't have to forgive him, touched him with forgiveness. Why wouldn't he be willing to do anything God asked after that, after that mercy? And, and friends, that's the adventure that God wants for you and me. That's the kind of relationship he wants for you and me. He wants you to eagerly run towards mission. That's what he wants for you. He wants you to eagerly run towards mission because, not because you have to, but because you want to, because he's been so good to you. He wants us to say, God, you are far from required to even pay attention to me, as small as I am, as sinful as I am, and yet you did pay attention to me. You loved me. You extended mercy to me for my sins. God, you demonstrated your own love towards me in that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. You gave me mercy and made me clean. You touched my lips. If you've got a job, I'll do it. You've been so good to me. Why wouldn't I? Send me. Worship. 
true, honest, vulnerable worship will bring us to a point of confession. And at that point, God meets us with his mercy. And then he propels us into mission. That's the way God works. Abraham's promise came through his son Isaac. And then what did God ask him to do? Go sacrifice your son. And Abraham goes, you've been so good to me. This is so hard, I don't get it. But God, I'll do it. And I'll believe that you can resurrect my son because that's where the promise comes from. And scripture tells us it was credited to him as righteousness. And Abraham went on to bless not only his family, but the world. God showed Moses his holiness and his mercy. And then he sent him as the great deliverer of his people from slavery. Remember, Moses had run away from his task and was in the backside of the desert when God found him and showed the holiness in the burning bush. Take off your shoes. And Moses was afraid. And he brings his mercy and he says, all right, guess what? You're going back. You're on mission. Jesus told Peter, don't be afraid. It's not like Jesus didn't know that Peter was a sinner. He knew that. He says, don't be afraid. And then he goes like this. This is just, this is great. This is great. From now on, you'll be fishing for men. Forget the fish. We got a new mission. Paul. About Paul, this enemy of the faith, who was knocked down by God's holiness and received God's mercy. In Acts 9, it says, This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings. And before the people of Israel, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. How did Paul respond? I'm going. Paul says in Philippians 3, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing knowledge, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, my Lord. Here am I, send me. Why not? He's been so good to me. The grace we receive upon our confession because of his holiness leads to mission. I'm going to say that again. If you've been asleep this, this whole time, I understand. I mean, you ate a lot of turkey. But this, this is the sentence I want you to hear. The grace we receive upon our confession because of God's holiness leads to mission. This has always been God's way. Search, search the scriptures and you'll see it. He reveals himself to us and we respond in confession and then he pours out his grace on us and then that spills out into some sort of a mission. And you know what? If we leave any one of these four out, our faith is not really faith. For instance, if you remove the experience of worshiping a holy God, your faith becomes soft and sentimental. And on a side note, there's a lot of Christian music that is very soft and sentimental. Yes, God is a loving God. Yes, he is a caring God. Yes, he is a merciful God. But he's also a holy God. And if we take the worship of his holiness out of our personal life, we just have a sentimental faith. If we remove confession before a holy God, our faith becomes hypocritical. 
If we remove grace from our walk with God, faith becomes very mechanical. And if we remove the mission response from our walk, our faith becomes selfish and lethargic. This is the way God transforms his prophets. This is the way God transforms his people. This is the way God transforms you and me. So let me wrap up this series by putting it another way. What can holiness accomplish in me if I choose to experience it? Not just theologically agree to it, but if I really experience it, what can it do? Holiness magnifies four things. It magnifies God's character and it magnifies my sin. And it magnifies his grace and it magnifies my mission. That's what holiness and experiencing God's holiness can do for us. I want to be on mission. I want to be on mission. I don't have to be on mission. I want to be on mission because he's been so good to me. There are people that really like to have a few practical things in a message like this. So let me give you three practicals very quickly. If I want to get this working in my life, I need to worship more. And I'm going to say something controversial right now to a group of people that love to study the Bible. And I love to study the Bible. But you know what? I know more about the Bible than I'll ever be able to put into practice. So I would say worship more and study a little less. <laughs> worship more and study a little less. I didn't say don't study. But this all began with worship, with God just smacking Isaiah with who he is. Worship more. Our study should lead to more worship, which leads to transformation. And so worship more honestly, more frequently, more vulnerably. The second thing I would say is confess daily. If this is the way God works, I need to confess daily. Jesus says, take up your cross daily. He tells us to pray, give us our daily bread. And Paul tells us to let our daily lives shine. There's a lot of dailies in the Bible. And we need to confess daily. And if we're to do all that daily, I don't know about you, but I need daily confession. I, I, I need it. But I heard someone say once, I'm not sure what to confess. I would say, brother, start worshiping and God will, God will give you something to confess. He'll magnify his character and all of a sudden he'll go like, whoa, Lord, forgive me for this. Forgive me for that. Confession is the doorway to transformation because that's where his, that's where his mercy comes in. But don't just confess sin. Confess or proclaim, shout out the incredible grace that we have. We confess his grace as well. Remember, Paul said we stand in grace. So we confess that every day. And finally, I need to listen for my mission. I need to listen for my mission. I want you to say that real quick. Listen for my mission. Say it again. Listen for my mission. Because every day God gives you a mission. Every day. It may be a prayer for someone. It may be sending a Bible verse. It may be taking a meal. It may be tutoring someone. It may, it may be something larger than that. But every day he's given you a mission. And as, as, we, as we close, I, it, the thought came to me, Psalm 23. And most everyone here knows the 23rd Psalm. You remember the shepherd king David said, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. 
right? The picture, my enemies are all around and God says, let's have breakfast. It's okay. Let's have breakfast, you and me. That's grace, right? What's the next, what's the next phrase? My cup runneth over or my cup overflows. That's the mission. See, God fills our cup. It overflows and that's the mission of grace that we give to others. Now, I know some of you say, and, and praise God, every day I meet God, every day I see him in some way, I worship, and he breaks me, and he remakes me, and that happens every day. That is, that is awesome. My challenge to you is find someone and teach them how to do that. Teach them how to meet with God so that he can break us and make us every day. There are others here or people who are listening live. You know for a fact that God is holy, but you can't remember the last time that you experienced his holiness. When you know he's holy, but I can't remember the last time I experienced, a time when, when I saw him so clearly that he floored me. My challenge to you as, as we close. You're all closed up. You need to open the windows. You need to open the windows and say, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation because I don't feel it right now and I haven't felt it for a while. Open the window and say, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Is that the need that you have? Because so much of this seems foreign to you today. Well, God wants to give it to you. God wants to give it to you. Has God's holiness done a work in you? He wants to. It's not just for prophets and apostles. It's for every one of us. Let's pray. God, we come to you and, and uh, we are humbled. God, we come to you and we lay before you our schedule. We lay before you our heart. And we want to be honest in our worship of you. God, we acknowledge that when we are outside of your presence, we can so easily excuse our sin. And some are far from you. They're here in church, but their hearts are far from you. But when we come into your presence, we can't escape our sin. And so we want to be in your presence right now, Lord, and ask your Holy Spirit to work in us. Each and every one of us. God, help us to stop adding more effort and trying to please you and instead worship you with more honesty and invite your work in us. God, keep us from gritting our teeth and focusing on our behavior and instead, Lord, open our eyes and see how magnificent and holy our Savior is. We open ourselves to you, God. We ask you to work. May today be a new beginning in many of our lives and a challenge in all of our lives of your holiness, our confession, your grace, and our eager mission. In Jesus' name, amen.